Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and this is Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. As a mom of four kids in New York City and a writer myself, I know all too well how short everyone is on time, so I'm here to help. I'm going to interview authors and writers of all types about their work, especially as it relates to parenting and family issues. Hopefully you can listen while doing 8 million other things and fall in love with these talented scribes and their fantastic books, essays, and songs like I have, plus get some tips on surviving parenthood. For more about me, you can check out my essays at zibbyowens.com. Today's episode has been sponsored by Once Upon a Farm. We know you'd love to feed your little one fresh food you make at home, but when there isn't time for shopping, chopping, and blending, we've got you covered with organic, cold-pressed blends as close to homemade as it gets. Onceuponafarmorganics.com. I'm thrilled to be here today with the Reverend Lydia San. Uh, Lydia San is a minister, writer, and teacher, but as she says in one of her articles, she's, quote, not that kind of minister. Um, A graduate of Scripps in the Yale Divinity School, she is currently a minister at St. Mark's United Methodist Church in San Diego. For fun, she loves watching The Bachelor, going to or hosting dinner parties, and writing in cute coffee shops, but mostly goes to them for the pastries. (laughs) So welcome, Lydia. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. (laughs) So I read Lydia's article on Medium. It was the featured article in my newsletter one day last week or the week before. Um, and the title, what 90 somethings regret most, uh, really stopped me in my tracks and, and I couldn't wait to read the article. And then afterwards I reached out to Lydia and so here we are. So, (laughs) um, so Lydia, tell me a little about your background. Where did you grow up? How did you end up becoming a minister? How did you, how did you get to this place? And then we'll delve into the article. Sure. Yeah. So I, uh, was raised in a Christian family, so uh, faith and Christianity was always a part of my life and upbringing, Um, but the thought of a minister never really occurred to me because I always saw ministers as older, boring men, and I never saw myself like that. Um, I was exposed to very few female ministers in my younger childhood. So that was just never a possibility for me until college. I decided to major in religion because I've always loved talking about these deeper religious and spiritual and philosophical questions. And I saw a scholarship application for any students who were interested in studying religion in graduate school and uh, what did the scholarship It said something like, um, and being a leader in your church. And I just saw the scholarship sign, and I thought, oh, extra money for school, so I'll definitely apply. And little did I know that it was a program to nurture younger people to go into the ministry, to encourage them to go and to consider the ministry. And so I, I was accepted for this fellowship, and they flew all of the fellows out to um, Candler School of Theology, which is a United Methodist Seminary in Georgia, which is attached to Emory University. And there I met for the first time female ministers, progressive ministers, just a whole new set of people whose characteristics I really identified with doing this vocation. And that's when it first occurred to me, okay, I can actually see myself 
doing this for the rest of my life because I have a set of skills and interests that really align with this with this profession. Like what what skills and interests align particularly well? Obviously, an interest in you know spirituality and religion, but um, for someone else wandering the halls of, of their university, what do you what do you think makes yeah. a great minister? Um, I think a passion for making the world a better place, for uh, connecting with other people at really deep heart-to-heart levels, helping people to become the best versions of themselves. I love writing sermons and creating these, like, weekly 10-minute thought, uh, these, you know, thought pieces for people to reflect upon for their weeks. I love uh, teaching about these sacred texts and delving into them further with congregants. So it's like a whole, we always say that the ministry is much more about breadth rather than depth. Like we have to have a whole set of skills like teaching and research, um, preaching, pastoral care, and interrelation, like interrelational skills. And I have all of those, and all of those things make me really happy to do. That's awesome. I wonder if there had been a sign. Yeah. Up. I wonder if there had been a sign up for some random other profession like psychology. If you would would have ended up being a psychologist. <laughs> That's like, yeah, yeah, right. It's like how life works: just timing and things that take you yeah. in a different direction. Yeah, there were there were a lot of things I, I considered doing else with my life, even when I was in seminary. I like resisted this path a lot in my life. So there were I, I definitely considered psychology. Definitely considered academia and all of those related fields for sure. Um, well, your your choice seems to have have paid off at least in in, in many respects <laughs> that I can see um, from my limited Thanks. you know vantage point here. Um, I really want to talk to you about this essay that you wrote. Um, what ninety somethings yeah. regret most. Um, so in the essay, you talk about how you interviewed your elderly congregants, uh, many in their nineties about their most yeah. personal feelings from sex to marriage to death and dying. Um, and I want to, I just want to hear, how did you come up with this idea for the study? Sure. I, so I interact with people who are much older than me a lot ever since I entered into full-time ministry. And one thing that I started to notice in relating with them and becoming friends with them is that they were very similar to me in a way that I did not expect. Like, we would laugh at similar jokes. We would talk about what we did on the weekends and enjoy similar TV shows and movies and just connect at these levels in a way that I would connect with my other peers, but I didn't think that I could ever connect with people much older than me. Part of this, I think, is because as a Korean person, like, and Koreans, culture is very hierarchical. Like there's this idea that I can't relate to people who are older than me or younger than me because there's this very hierarchical way of interacting with people in those different demographics. So this assumption of mine that I wouldn't be able to connect with them was completely broken during my time in ministry with all of these people who were so much older than me. And then it just was a kernel of an idea that kind of became bigger as I had these conversations and then all of my questions to them would 
come out into these greater conversations about their lives and what they have regretted and what they have loved so far and what they're looking forward to. And that's when I decided when I decided I wanted to actually put this all together into an essay. That's great. I'm just going to read part of what what you said. Um, I have a lot of sections that uh-huh. are super interesting, but let me start with this one. You wrote, most of their regrets, I guess you asked them what they regretted the most and what, what they were the happiest, what times in their lives were the happiest. So you said most of their mm-hmm. regrets revolved around their family and how they wish relationships, usually either with their children or between their children, turned out differently. These relational fractures I could see on their faces still caused them much pain and sorrow. One of my interviewees has two children who have not seen or spoken to one another for over two decades. She lamented that this, among all the mistakes and regrets she could bring to mind, was the singular thing that kept her up at night. Were you surprised to hear that about the regrets? Yes, I was. Like, what well, I, I would think, you know, they would, I mean, sometimes I feel like relationships between kids sometimes feel out of my control <laughs> a little bit. Um, and when you look back on a whole life, yeah. you know, yeah. I'm not sure what I would have expect what I would expect a room of 90 year olds to say or what I would think that I would say when I was 90. What were you expecting? I think I was expecting something more um, I don't know, it's really hard to say. I I knew this about this person's life because I had heard her mention it before. But she's mentioned a lot of things about her life before, so I wasn't expecting this to be the one thing that she would share when I asked this question about regrets, which just went to show me that of all the things that that could come to mind in her life in regards to her career and her romantic partner and where she's living and all the things that she's accomplished, that this was the most important thing to her. I I don't know. I think I'm just like you in that I also would, would think that the relationship between my children would be beyond my control. So it was just interesting to me and also something that I wouldn't expect myself to answer in the same way. So then you moved on to the happiest times of their lives, and this is the part mm-hmm. that really uh, has resonated with me the most and that I kind of haven't stopped thinking about through the ins and outs Mm -hmm. of my stressful daily life with the kids. You said, I then moved on to the topic of the happiest times of their lives. Every single one of these 90-something-year-olds, all of whom are widowed, recalled a time when their spouses were still alive and when their children were younger and living at home. As a busy young mom and working professional who frequently fantasizes about the faraway imagined pleasures of retirement, I quickly responded, but weren't those the most stressful times of your lives? to which they all agreed. There was no hesitation, though, that those days were also the happiest. It, like, makes me so sad. <laughs> yeah. Right? I mean, I'm, like, deep in the trenches myself, as I know you are with your baby, and, um, you know, is this, I feel like there's this um, pressure that to enjoy every minute, but the in and outs of, of the days are, are tricky, but then you realize, I don't know, is this, is this the happiest my life is going to get? I don't, how did you feel when you heard this? Yeah, no, I feel the same exact way as a busy mom, and I, like I said in my piece, I frequently fantasize about when he's older and I get more time to myself, or when he's even when he's even out of the house. So for them to say that to me was a big reality check. Um, 
I, I think it just goes to what a lot of philosophers and sages have mentioned throughout their works all of time, which is that human beings are either focused on the future or we're always looking back upon the past, but rarely do we treasure and value the present moment. And oftentimes when we think about our lives, the most the happiest moments are the times when we are with people that we love. So it does make sense that this would be the answer to this question of the happiest time of their lives, but certainly, like you're saying, in the moment, it feels very exhausting and tiresome. And I don't mean to complain. It's also amazing, right? Like, But yeah. it just can be tricky. It can be hard. Um, it is. Um, I'm actually, so I'm doing a podcast interview later this month with the former um, editor and writer from the Motherload blog of the New York Times who has written for many other places. Her name's um, KJ Del Antonio. And she just wrote a book called How to Be a Happier Parent. And I was thinking of yeah. the whole time. I've only read the first, like, two chapters. I was like, I have to get yeah. this to Lydia's son right away. Um, because she basically is saying, you know, we're all in it, right? We're in it. It's not always fun. And there are all these obstacles to, to the fun. But this is, like, the life we chose, right? We had decided to have yeah. kids. We want this. And it's frankly going to be the bulk of our of our lives is having kids at home. So we've got to find a way for ourselves to be happier mm-hmm. parents. And she gives like very specific mm-hmm. tips. So anyway, just a preview of that to come. And I'm as soon as the book comes out, I'm going to send you a copy because anyway, I think it's. Gonna I would have, love to read that. Yeah, yeah, I feel like everybody should should be reading this because like it's just the little things, you know. Even since I read her ten mantras yesterday, like little ways, like to make yourself just a little bit happier each day, right? Like helping your kids be yeah. a little more independent or not for you. Your, your son is still too young, but you know, there, there, there are, we don't, we don't, we haven't chosen this as a path of misery, right? We're very blessed, mm-hmm. but it's hard to, anyway, I'm rambling, but anyway, I think you know what, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean. But. I do. And something, something that I do, one little thing that I do that helps me a lot is when I am spending time with him, and I'd rather be doing other stuff or spending time by myself or working on stuff for work or being with my husband. I ask myself, what will I miss about this moment when I'm older? What will I miss about this time of my life when it's all gone? And so all of a sudden that question helps me to recenter myself and brings me back to treasuring this very unique particular moment in time and then all of it becomes wonderful again I mean not easy but wonderful if you know what I mean yeah yeah um so you also found um just switch gears a little bit um the interviewee's thoughts on beauty and aging which I also thought was super interesting Um, You wrote, my interviewees' Mm -hmm. thoughts on beauty and their aging bodies were also varied in that their changing physical appearances only mattered insofar as it mattered to them when they were younger. Those who were valued for their good looks or athleticism experienced much more grief in regards to their current bodies than those who derived confidence from admirable qualities that were much less time-fixed. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah. I I mean, this part isn't really surprising to me that those who were uh, derived a lot of value from what they look like or the capabilities of their bodies would experience a lot more sadness about those 
changing as we age as opposed to those who derive value from something else that doesn't really change for the most part until, you know, the very end or some kind of sickness takes you over. Um, yeah, I, I think that that makes perfect sense. And I don't, but at the same time, I don't think if there are people who have a lot of joy from what they look like or what their bodies can do, um, I don't think that they should not be happy with those things. You know, I think one of the things that I've learned in post-colonial studies is that we're embodied beings. Like, part of our reality is to live in these physical bodies that we've been given and to make sure that everybody in these physical bodies are, are happy and healthy. So... I just think that this is like the path of life is that that as we get older that our bodies become to become weaker and then we have to deal with the the results, the consequences of that. And part of that is grief, which is a very natural process of of dealing with aging. I did um I did a, a similar like tiny study compared to the in depth interviews you did, but I was interested in how my grandmother who's now ninety almost ninety five um, how she mm-hmm. is st- she is still interested in her weight and her body image and always saying things like, oh, what do you think about her? Am I as fat as she is? Or just, you know, it's tongue-in-cheek yeah. at this point. But I was so surprised that, you know, when you were yeah. saying, you know, your congregants, you're surprised with the hierarchy of aging in your culture. Like, I think even just culture here in America is like you don't think that old elderly people have the same – I know this sounds bizarre because obviously they do, but they must not have the same thoughts and feelings as we do at age 40 or whatever hell you are because, um, you know, it obviously is just so much different when, in fact, they're just us a little bit later in life, right? Like, why would yes. all the issues go magically just disappear? Because um, yes. I, I found that yes. – oh, sorry, go ahead, interject. No, no, I'm just agreeing with you. Yes. I mean, I found that, um, you know, most of the, I did like a, a, a research little study that I put in all the mailboxes of both my grandmother's nursing homes and mm-hmm. an overwhelming amount of the women, um, still cared a lot about what they ate and how their bodies looked. And mm-hmm. a lot of them weighed themselves every yeah. day. And, um, you know, they just, it just never really went away. And obviously similar to what we were just saying about, you know, you know, your athleticism and looks in your aging, you know, obviously the women who had more eating disorders and, um, issues with body image when they were younger have more issues with them later. I mean, go figure. But, um, still Mm -hmm. it's like, I think it helps us in the, in the stressful moments of our days, I think to know that like things don't just disappear when you're older and, you know, to get Mm -hmm. a handle on things now is, is so critical in a way, right? We have to just embrace some of the things about life, not to be too philosophical. I mean, you're the minister here, so maybe you should be talking instead of me. <laughs> no, you, you, you are, you're saying exactly what I'm thinking. So yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. I think that, um, I think that there is this, there's this two part assumption that one, I won't care about this when I'm older and that it'll just magically disappear and therefore, I don't need to deal with it now. But exactly what you're saying is that, one, it'll, we never stop being us. But at the same time, if we deal with these issues right now, it's actually going to affect our lives later instead of, instead of not dealing with it now and then just expecting that they'll resolve themselves because they don't, right. clearly, from these people that I've talked to. Yeah, interesting. 
And another, another, Mm -hmm. another, um, element that you had touched on in your article was that no matter how old they were, your congregants were still falling in love and becoming attracted to other people, even those who they weren't necessarily married to. Like that doesn't stop either, apparently. Uh Uh-huh. And I hope this comes as good news to people. It came as good news to me. It just made me really happy to think that people still fall in love to the end of their lives. It's just such a great feeling to be in love with somebody so that that part of you doesn't really go away with age. I was very happy to discover that. Yeah, it's really be- it's actually really beautiful when you think about it. <laughs> it's really nice. Yeah. Um, yeah, kind of sounding like not much is changing as people are getting older, but, um, <laughs> <No. laughs> um, the, the last finding was that you found that most congregants were less afraid of death and more afraid of dying, which, you know, also mm-hmm. makes sense. Can you tell me more about what people were saying about that? Yeah, it, that, well, a lot of my, the, the people that I interviewed, most of them are church members. And so they have this they have this assurance that they're going to be taken care of after their lives on earth are over. So it's really that last leg of the journey towards death that frightens them, especially for those who are still pretty healthy right now. Having watched their own family and friends go through some really difficult times throughout that last leg, I think that they just can't help but think about that for themselves. And a lot of the times when you're really sick, you can't really express what you want to happen to your body. And that's the debate that's going on right now, right, in healthcare um, about the right to die and a dignified way to die. And there's so many debates about that. But it's a problem because as you get older and you get more and more sick, you can't really express your desires and opinions in the way that you can when you're healthy. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of, I know that there's a lot of work being done right now of expressing those desires before you get to that state of not being able to express your preferences, which I think is a great thing. Totally. It's hard to, uh, well, anyway, this question is making me depressed. I think I'm going to move on. <laughs> yes. I don't, I don't want to have, like, a panic attack while I'm interviewing you here. Um, so. oh, yeah. But I will say I will say one thing that comes up a lot as a minister of a congregation with older folks, and I'm doing memorial services all the time. One thing that comes up a lot when somebody passes away but it was unexpected is, wow, that's amazing. Like, what a great death, right? Like, short and quick. Like, that's what everybody wants for themselves. Like, just take me out. And even if it's unexpected, it's really the, it's the Alzheimer's or the um, those crippling chronic illnesses that are really what's, what people are afraid of most and that we should try to avoid. Yeah. But, yes, now we can move on. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so this article uh, was just one of the of the many articles on your blog, which it looks like you started um, at your son's baptism with this absolutely beautiful mm-hmm. letter that you wrote to him and read out loud during the baptism. Um, how did you decide to start a blog in the middle of you know all the other sermons and things that you're doing and writing? Um, how did how did that come about? 
Yeah, so I initially started, well, this whole writing for a broader audience came about because I was starting a new a new program at my church, and that was geared towards millennials and older, like people between the ages of 20 and 40 who are not going to church these days. And I had this, like, mission to let them know, you know, I know that you guys don't go to church because the church has a bad name for itself, has created a bad name for itself, and it's completely understandable, but I want you to know that there's a different kind of faith out there, and I didn't know it myself. So I wrote this piece about being a minister and not that kind of judgmental, you know, fire and brimstone type of minister, and I wrote another piece about uh, an introduction to progressive Christianity, and I pitched it to HuffPost, which they posted... And then very quickly after I did that, their blogger contribution, contributor program ended. And so here I I was getting like on a roll, like writing these pieces to get this message about progressive Christianity out to a broader audience. And then they ended that program. And so that's when I decided, okay, I'm going to make my own blog. And and now it's just become a thing where, because I I discovered that I really like writing these creative pieces that are just on my mind of thoughts. And and then I uh, my friend introduced me to the Medium platform, and I've been using that, and I've been having a ton of fun with that. So that's, that's how that blog got started. You know, you should also look into um, the Today Show has a Today Parenting team where you can also post mm-hmm. as a contributor, um, and they have okay. a very wide reach as well, and you just sign up and... Uh, um, you know, they'll, they'll promote your articles if you have more likes or whatever, but it has a lot of perks, so you should look into that. It has awesome. great articles, and because um, I'm with you, I started posting on HuffPost, and they posted one of my articles, and I had, like, all these followers, and then all of a sudden I was like, okay, well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, now I actually like this, so what am I going to do now? Exactly. Yeah. Anyway, we'll look into that. It's another it's another good outlet in, um, um, in addition to Medium, although they do own the rights. Okay. They own the rights to your stuff. Well, we can talk about this later, but... Um, yeah. Medium, you still own your your rights, and today can do whatever they want with it. So, but it's um, a, it's, it's a good uh, platform. Um, yeah. In one of the articles that you wrote, you talked about um, two marriage hacks to helping mm-hmm. marriages, which also dovetails nicely with the the parenting piece. Um, and you said, make a list of the moments that made you want to be with your spouse, and let go of your victim story, and how those are, are yeah. super helpful. Tell me more about that. Please. Yeah. So I think that we humans are very creative people, and storytelling is one of our greatest gifts, and it's also one of our greatest practices that can lead to our demise and our suffering. And we so easily create narratives about why me and why is this happening to me and why is that person doing that to me, not just with our spouses, although that happens most frequently with the people closest to us, but with job opportunities or not getting certain things in your life. And one of the strongest teachings in mindfulness practices and also in Buddhism is accepting things as they are, as they are neutrally. And then from there, not creating a story, but creating the story that you want to live and following and being in alignment with your values. So that's, where that's coming from because we so easily make stories and my spouse is something that 
doesn't he doesn't do something that I want him to do. And then I have this constant common narrative of, you know, he's not a good husband and I, I should be with somebody else or I would be happier with somebody else. And anything that he can do can feed that narrative that's just, you know, my own victim story. And so I think in talking with my friends who are also married also have this tendency to do this. And so the first thing is just to drop, to notice this tendency and then to let go of that story. And not to say that that story won't go away completely, but just even noticing that we're telling that story is a, a really first powerful step. I like it. Good tip. <laughs> and, then this list, and then the set. Yeah, tell me about the list. Pardon? Do you keep your list of the yeah. ones like, at the ready? Yeah. Or are they like laminated on the fridge? Or <laughs> Yeah, or I do it on my phone. It's more private. Like my... Go um, ahead. No, I was I was just kidding. I didn't think they were really on the fridge. Oh. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, so uh, this is the second part of that story that as we let go of our victim stories is that we start creating a different story, a different story that actually serves us and serves our relationships and is in line with our values of of treating one another well and empathy and always considering another person's perspective before their own. And so when we are prone to just going into our own stories, that's when I pull out my notes app on my iPhone where I have a list of all the things, the wonderful things that my husband has done for me and with me and the beautiful memories that we've created. And then I'm reminded that we're doing something else. That there's another story to the story that I create when, when he doesn't do something I want him to do. Great. Good idea. I'm gonna whip out. Yeah. My, I'm gonna whip my phone out right now and uh, get started. <laughs> yeah. Do it. Do it. Just create a long list and, and and make it a running list so that you are always adding to it. That's nice. Um, I know we're almost out of time for this interview, but I want to hear about the mm-hmm. class that you teach online called Spiritual Decision Making, which you you teach through a site called Skillshare. Skillshare, mm-hmm. which I hadn't heard of, but sounds amazing, and I like want to go figure out something I can teach and, and do it too. But in, yeah, in your class, you help students make decisions, small and large, in a more spiritually aware manner. Um, so as someone who can't even select which nail polish to wear, let alone like vacation ideas, um, I'd love to hear mm-hmm. your, your top tips on sort of how, how to make decisions. Yeah, totally. So decision making is one of my biggest passions. It's like a subject that I love talking about because I've struggled with indecision for so much of my life. Like, should I marry this person? Should I go into this profession? And it can be really energy and time-consuming. And so that's when I started seeking out and uh, finding a lot of resources within the Christian contemplative religious tradition that moves away from the dominant method of decision-making that we're taught in our school system and in in the Western intellectual world, which is very rational and reason-based, calculating, and also very fear-based. So we make a lot of decisions based on our fears of what are we afraid will come out of this path versus this path, as opposed to making decisions that are based on confidence and courage and dreaming. So that is much more um, a part of ourselves that's very repressed 
because we're afraid to risk and be vulnerable for so many reasons, right? There are so many reasons why we are afraid to dream. And so I basically discovered these practices that get access to that other more courageous, confident, peaceful part of ourselves through imagination and prayer. And those uh, give, give an insight into what path you should take. So are you, okay, so if I, I get specific, so one specific exercise is, and for all these exercises, you have to like get into a mood of calm and breathing and a quiet room where you are not distracted by anything else. So that's the very first step. And then one of the four methods is imagining yourself much older than you are and then having a conversation with that self about the decision that you're trying to make and then listening in on what she tells you. Hmm. Yeah, so incredibly creative and imaginative, very different from the pro, con, reason-based calculating method that we are often taught. Hmm. That's so great. I feel like I have so many now tips from this conversation. I feel like I can apply it in my life. This is fantastic. I feel yeah. like I'm going to have a whole different yeah. kind of day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And as I told you by email, by the way, I am convinced that you should be writing a book. I mean, you have such a unique point of view. So for any listeners out there who agree with me, you have to contact Lydia San, Reverend Lydia San, and get her to write a book. <laughs> do, you have any, do you have any interest in doing that? I feel like you it's such a natural extension of what you've been doing. Thank you so much. I would love to write a book one day. I don't have any plans to do it anytime soon. And part of the reason is because I really don't know what I would write about. I have these like brief moments of inspiration for essays. So like very very short things uh, that are driven by like a little kernel of a thought. But I haven't had anything that can like last about 200 pages quite yet. But maybe the inspiration will strike eventually. And then I'll let you all know. <laughs> awesome. Well, honestly, thank you so, so much for your time. I'm sorry we couldn't meet in person, but I'm so thrilled that we got a chance to chat. Thank you for these really actionable tips and also for giving me and I'm sure listeners the perspective of um, what you gleaned from your elderly congregants and how that helps sort of live life in a better, more fulfilling, sort of meaningful way today. I mean, I can't really yeah, thank welcome. you enough. <laughs> it's amazing. You're welcome. Thank you so much. I enjoyed this very much. Oh, good. I'm so glad. All right. Well, thank you so much and uh, take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books has been sponsored by Once Upon a Farm Organics, onceuponafarmorganics.com. Thanks for listening.